0: welcome to the improve the news podcast for thursday july 27th 2023 where we separate the spin from the facts i'm adam clark and
1: i'm melissa topscher with today's headlines hunter biden's plea
0: deal falls apart rudy giuliani admits to making false statements regarding the 2020 election Zelensky rebukes Ukrainian officials
1: accused of corruption.
0: Russian and Chinese delegations visit North Korea.
1: Nat West's CEO resigns following the Nigel Farage
0: controversy. Harvard's legacy policy comes under investigation.
1: Japan's population declines by a record 800,000.
0: UNESCO recommends banning smartphones in schools. Wildfires across the Mediterranean kill dozens. And a congressional UFO hearing begins.
1: Hunter Biden's plea deal falls apart. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Politico, The New York Times, CNN, The Wall Street Journal, Fox News and CBS. Hunter Biden's plea deal on two misdemeanor tax crimes, failing to pay more than 100000 in taxes on his $1.5 million plus income, in both 2017 and 2018, has fallen apart after presiding Judge Mary Ellen Nureka raised concerns over language in the agreement regarding not prosecuting Hunter for tax crimes in the future. Nureka was referring to other possible crimes, including violations related to representing foreign governments. The rejected deal would have also not prosecuted Hunter for possessing an illegal firearm as long as he relinquished all weapons and remained sober for two years. Norika also threatened Hunter Biden's legal team with sanctions after one of his lawyers allegedly misrepresented who she worked for to remove filings from GOP Representative Jason Smith, Republican of Missouri, from the public docket. Smith had urged the judge to consider whistleblower materials from two IRS agents before deciding on the plea deal. The tumultuous court proceeding, which resulted in Hunter reversing course and pleading not guilty, began Wednesday when Prosecutor Leo Wise insisted that the investigation into Hunter's activities remained ongoing and that he could face additional foreign lobbying charges. After Wise asserted that Hunter would not be free from future investigations, his defense attorney, Chris Clark, said, then there's no deal. For her part, Judge Noreika raised concerns about the gun charges deal, which would void the entire plea deal if deemed unconstitutional. The failed negotiations come as Republicans have intensified their scrutiny of Hunter, arguing that he was receiving special treatment due to his status as the president's son. Yesterday, they also encouraged the judge to consider recent testimony given by two IRS whistleblowers regarding the tax case.
0: Thank you, Melissa. Here on the Improve the News podcast, we like to separate the facts from the narrative spin. Melissa just laid out the facts on that story. I'm going to start off our first round of narrative spins with a Republican narrative provided by the Federalist. Hunter Biden and his father, the most powerful politician in the world, should never have been given a plea deal due to the countless crimes they've committed together. President Biden has helped cover up his son's illicit drug use, solicitation of prostitutes, and international money laundering schemes with countries such as Ukraine and China. Given that the president just sent cluster bombs to Ukraine, it's more important than ever to take off the kid gloves and investigate every detail of their million-dollar sellout of America. Raw story gives us a Democratic narrative. Hunter
1: Biden is just the latest child of a Democratic president who Republicans like to ruthlessly attack. They mocked 12-year-old Chelsea Clinton, 10-year-old Malia Obama, and now Hunter Biden, a man recovering from drug addiction who happens to be the son of a politician. Interestingly, however, the GOP was never up in arms over Donald Trump's daughter Ivanka and her husband Jared Kushner's nefarious foreign business dealings while he was president. This is just another example of political theater for the GOP to use ahead of the election.
0: Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org forward slash pod. Take a quick survey and tell us what you think. Now back to the news. Giuliani admits to making false statements. Here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today, Associated Press, Reuters, and Guardian. In response to a lawsuit against him, Rudy Giuliani, who was once former President Trump's lawyer, In a filing Tuesday, conceded he made false statements accusing two Georgia election workers of counting extra votes to rig the 2020 presidential election. Ruby Freeman and Wanda Shy Moss, who were vote counters at State Farm Arena in Atlanta, filed suit against Giuliani in December 2021, accusing him of defaming them. Although Giuliani made the concession, the filing said he wouldn't admit to the truth of the allegations against him from the plaintiffs. Freeman and Moss say that because Giuliani and Trump continued to make claims against them, despite these claims being debunked by Georgia election officials, they became targets for conspiracy theorists. In the filing, Giuliani also denied mishandling or destroying evidence, saying that the Department of Justice returned his devices with files corrupted or erased.
1: Thank you, Adam, for the facts on that story, and we'll start this round of spins with a pro-Trump narrative from the Daily Mail. Giuliani hasn't done anything wrong, and this filing was made just to move the case along, hopefully leading to a dismissal. Giuliani had a First Amendment right to make the claims he made, and even if they were false, the plaintiffs are going to have to prove that his words hurt them, which will put the onus on the plaintiffs to show clear-cut evidence.
0: And that's followed up with a Democratic narrative provided by Washington Post. Giuliani can spin this filing any way he wants, but the facts show that his and Trump's comments were always dubious, and now he's joining the list of Trump allies who are finally deciding to stop defending the indefensible. The defamatory statements against Freeman and Moss caused real-world harm, and Giuliani must be held fully accountable. Zelensky rebukes Ukrainian
1: officials accused of corruption. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the official website of the president of Ukraine, Ukranska Pravda, Seymour Hirsch, and OCCRP. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky issued a rebuke to his country's public servants that are engaged in corruption on Tuesday, warning them that there will not be any of you in his nightly address. Zelensky said, no one will forgive MPs, judges, military commissars, or any other officials for putting themselves in opposition to the state. For any public official, this is a betrayal of state principles, a betrayal of the interests of society. Every law that is needed to strengthen the position of our troops must be adopted, he added. If you are working for Ukraine, you are needed by Ukraine. If not, you are not. The warning came hours after Ukraine's State Bureau of Investigation, or SBI, together with the Security Service of Ukraine, or SSU, said they were investigating lawmaker Yuri Aristov, a deputy chairman of the Committee of National Security, Defense and Intelligence in Ukraine's parliament, as well as a member of Zelensky's Servant of the People Party. According to law enforcement agencies, while Aristov was on government business in Poland, he arranged a falsified sick leave certificate from a medical facility in Kiev before traveling to the private island of Ithafushi in the Maldives. There, accompanied by his family, he stayed at the five-star Waldorf Astoria Hotel until 22 July. Under Ukrainian law, unless on official business, public officials are barred from traveling abroad. Meanwhile, despite Zelensky's condemnations, he himself has been accused of corruption. A report from veteran investigative journalist Seymour Hersh earlier in the year accused the Ukrainian leader and his inner circle of using U.S. funds to buy discounted diesel from Russia, pocketing the difference from market rates with at least $400 million allegedly embezzled in total. According to previous documents acquired by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists in 2021, Zelensky has shown to be using offshore companies in the British Virgin Islands, Cyprus and Belize. Such entities are typically used to avoid taxes, as well as to hide the
0: ownership of assets such as property from public view. All right. Thanks, Melissa. We're going to start off with a pro-establishment narrative provided by Spectator. Zelensky understands that if Ukraine is to join NATO or the EU, it has to clap down on its problem of corruption that existed long before the war in Russia. He is rightly taking steps to eradicate this problem and should be commended for taking Ukraine in the right direction.
1: Here's the establishment critical narrative from Citizen Frank. Despite Zelensky's public pronouncements, he himself has been at the center of corruption allegations to the tune of several hundred million dollars. How can he be taken seriously on corruption if he's also involved?
0: And occasionally we get statistics-based nerd narratives from our friends at the Metaculous prediction community. For this story, they believe that there's a 1% chance that Ukraine will join the European Union before 2024. Doesn't sound like much of a chance. I
1: don't think that at least Metaculous isn't going to be... uh... Betting on that anytime soon? No,
0: I, I guess you know the EU has its invitation list all wrapped up for the rest of the year.
1: Sorry, maybe next time. Maybe,
0: maybe, maybe next year, maybe. Ukraine. Maybe next year. Yeah. Maybe if you, you know, pay pay the EU a little more euros, you, you'll get you on the list. We'll see what happens. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. We'll see. Twenty twenty four could be your year. Russia and China make their first North Korean visit since the pandemic. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, BBC News, Reuters, Al Jazeera, Independent, and The Hill. North Korean media reported on Wednesday that officials from both Russia and China have sent delegations to the country to be present at the recognition of the 70th anniversary of the Korean War's armistice in 1953. Russia's delegation, led by Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu, was welcomed at the airport in Pyongyang on Tuesday evening. The Chinese delegation arrived on Wednesday. The PRC's delegation will be led by Li Hongzong, a member of the CCP's Politburo. The delegations are believed to be the first in North Korea since the beginning of the COVID pandemic. North Korean state media has claimed that the anniversary on Thursday, known as Victory Day, will be a grand manner that will go down in history. Satellite images show the state has been preparing once again for a large-scale military parade. Russia's defense ministry has stated that the visit would help strengthen the military ties as well as serve as an important stage in the development of cooperation. Spokesperson to China's foreign ministry, Mao Ning, also released a statement claiming that the visit would be conducive to peace and stability. Since 2022, North Korea has test-fired approximately 100 missiles in the region.
1: Thank you, Adam, for laying out the facts on that story, and we'll start with a pro-establishment narrative from the Washington Examiner. The visit to North Korea by China and Russia is an attempt to rebuke the U.S. A chance to show a tripartite stand against the U.S.-led international order is a primary motivation. These powers are playing a dangerous game in trusting North Korea, known for its unpredictable hostility and potential to escalate tension.
0: And then there's an establishment critical narrative provided by China Daily. The visits by Beijing and Moscow to Pyongyang show unity in the face of American aggression. Just like 70 years ago, China will continue to strive for a peaceful and stable society and will continue to repel forces that continue to prohibit such a mission.
1: And the nerds at Metaculus are at it again. This one says there's a 13% chance that North Korea and South Korea will be recognized as a unified sovereign state by 2045. Nat West's CEO resigns following the Nigel Farage controversy. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Guardian, CNN, and Sky News. Alison Rose, the CEO of British bank NatWest, has resigned after admitting to a serious error of judgment in discussing the closure of former Brexit party leader Nigel Farage's accounts at the institution's subsidiary, Coutts, with a BBC reporter. Information Minister John Edwards will now investigate Rose's disclosure. Some anonymous shareholders have also suggested that the bank's long-serving chair, Howard Davies, should also step down. Though Coutts originally cited commercial reasons for Farage's account closure, the bank's internal report into why his accounts were closed revealed that Farage's politics were at odds with their position as an inclusive organization. The BBC on Monday also apologized to Farage for reporting that he had fallen below the financial threshold to retain his account, with BBC editor Simon Jack acknowledging that the story was incomplete and inaccurate. This comes as Treasury Minister Andrew Griffith met with 19 heads of banks on Wednesday to discuss allegations that other individuals have also been denied access to banking over their politics. While unlikely, Farage, the former right-wing politician-turned-broadcaster, has said that Nat West's entire
0: board should be replaced. Thanks for the facts, Melissa. Christian Post is going to start it off with a conservative narrative spin. While the breaking news surrounding Nigel Farage is a cause for hope, the banking establishment is still debanking political outsiders without just cause and needs to be held to account. Barclays, for example, still has yet to reopen the Christian Group Core Issues Trust, or the CIT, despite having compensated them over $25,000 for wrongfully terminating their account. These banks are becoming more emboldened by the day, stripping anyone who dares not conform to the mainstream narrative. And the Harvard Business Review gives us a progressive narrative. Banks
1: certainly do prop up some ideologies over others, but not the ones conservatives complain about. The corporate world is only just starting to support marginalized communities who, in the past, had no access to the world's wealth. These self-proclaimed progressive institutions have funded racist politicians for decades, But thankfully, movements like Black Lives Matter have encouraged them to start backing the downtrodden rather than the rich and powerful.
0: The U.S. Department of Education is investigating Harvard's legacy policy. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, NBC, Associated Press, and The Hill. In the wake of last month's Supreme Court decision striking down race based admissions at U.S. universities, the U.S. Department of Education, or the DOE, is investigating whether Harvard is racially discriminating against non-white students by favoring applicants with ties to donors and alumni. The Boston-based nonprofit Lawyers for Civil Rights claims that Harvard's use of so-called legacy admissions policies is discriminatory, since 70% of donor-related and legacy applicants who are six times more likely to be admitted are white. Earlier this month, a complaint was filed on behalf of Black and Latino community groups in New England, which claims that 28% of Harvard's class of 2019 had a parent or other relative who graduated from the university. The DOE's Office for Civil Rights informed Lawyers for Civil Rights Boston of the investigation. The department will focus on whether legacy admissions policies violate Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act which prohibits racial discrimination by any program or activity receiving federal funds. Schools that have already terminated their legacy admissions policies include Amherst College in Massachusetts, Carnegie Mellon University in Pennsylvania, and John Hopkins University in Maryland. Wesleyan University in Connecticut announced last week that it would be doing the same. Thank you,
1: Adam, for those facts. We'll start these spins with a left narrative from the While the Supreme Court ruled against admissions policies aimed at uplifting marginalized Black and Latino students, the conservative court made sure to keep affirmative action in place for white people. Prestigious universities perpetuate intergenerational cycles of wealth and inhibit upward mobility by favoring the wealthy, and predominantly white, children of alumni. Biden is 100% right to call for an investigation into legacy admissions, that discriminate against minority students. And
0: left narratives are typically followed up with right narratives. We've got one here provided by Daily Wire. After losing its mind over a court ruling that ended racism in college admissions, the woke left is trying to claim that legacy admissions are somehow racist. Biden is now calling for an investigation into the so-called racist policy that benefits wealthy applicants. However, there's one problem. Biden has used his position as a senator, vice president, and president to get his unqualified family members into elite institutions. It's easy for powerful Democrats to oppose policies that will still advantage them.
1: In Japan, the population declines by a record 800,000. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, The Japan Times, Nikkei Asia, The Guardian, and The Tokyo Review. Data released by the government of Japan on Wednesday shows that the country's population declined at its fastest ever pace in 2022, with the number of Japanese citizens contracting by around 800,000, a record number. This was the first time that Japan's population fell in all 47 prefectures of the country since their demographic surveys began in 1968. A record low number of births, around 772,000, and record high deaths, at 1.57 million, sank the number of Japanese citizens to around 122.4 million. The latest data also showed that the number of foreign nationals in Japan climbed to just under 3 million, with their number increasing in every prefecture. The National Institute of Population and Social Security Research estimates that foreign nationals will account for 10.2% of the population by 2067. Japan's aging and declining population has been termed a crisis by Prime Minister Fumio Kishida, who says the nation risks not being able to maintain its societal functions if trends don't reverse. More than half of Japan's municipalities are considered to be depopulated. 85% of Japan's municipalities added new foreign residents to their population. Some cities and resort towns saw their population rise thanks to foreign workers and internal migration, while some areas have had success attracting young families with childcare and housing. Meanwhile, 21% of Japan's population is over the age of 65, expected to increase to 40% by 2050 at current rates. Japan's fertility rate, 1.3 children per woman, is comparable to South Korea at 0.78, China at 1.7, and the U.S. 1.64, with a fertility
0: rate of 2.1
1: needed to maintain Japan's population.
0: Thank you, Melissa. We've got a Narrative A provided by The Economist. Japan, once the poster child for population decline is now just one of many developed countries that are facing population collapse thanks to shrinking fertility rates. Indeed, underpopulation, not overpopulation, is becoming the most pressing demographic threat to humanity. This will force countries like Japan, a harbinger of what the rest of the world will face, to adopt higher taxes, push back the retirement age, and face an intractable economic decline. Narrative B comes from the
1: New York Times. A declining population is not a one-way ticket to economic collapse. As dire predictions with regard to population trends fail to reflect reality, people in developed countries like Japan without children are simply making trade-offs. As a declining birth rate is offset by a meteoric rise in life expectancy, a shift away from a mindset of endless growth and toward quality of life will have a beneficial impact on the environment and our well-being. There's no need to panic, as this time of change will bring as many opportunities as challenges.
0: And there's a nerd narrative that says there's a 65% chance that any country will have a total fertility rate below .5 by the year 2053. And this is according to the Metaculous prediction community. I saw an an
1: interesting uh, piece about foreign nationals actually coming into these uh, prefectures that they're saying are, are almost uninhabited, right? because these uh, older couples will will pass away and their kids don't want the inheritance, right? They don't want to keep the house because it would be more money to maintain this huge um, estate than to just leave it. So they're just deserting so it. So the state will sell it off. Oh the state will sell it off. Yeah. And so, you know, there there was a piece about uh, a man and his his wife and their young child and uh coming in and buying this um gorgeous like property, uh Japanese traditional property. For twenty five thousand dollars, wow! And then putting in, I think about five hundred thousand to make the the proper repairs. So, so it it's beautiful what he did to it. Was beautiful. It was really uh, bent out of shape, mm-hmm. but it shows you why these young Japanese people don't want to be uh, maintaining their parents' property, right? If it just happens to fall
0: on their on their lap, yeah, they they're just ready rather just get rid of it and not have to deal with it. A report from UNESCO says that smartphones should be banned from schools. And here are the facts as agreed upon by UNESCO, The Guardian, The Telegraph, Voice of America, and BBC News. A new UNESCO report released on Tuesday has recommended banning smartphones from schools globally to enhance critical thinking and improve learning. The report found that smartphones had a detrimental impact on children's emotional stability and educational performance and that a ban is essential to protect students from online bullying. Digital technology as a whole, including artificial intelligence, should never take precedence over in-person, teacher-led instruction system of teaching, the report added. UNESCO's Director General Audrey Aloza cited the lack of appropriate governance and regulation to justify the agency's call for a global ban on smartphones in schools, adding that the technology must primarily meet the needs of the learner and not act as a substitute for human interaction. In its 2023 Global Education Monitor report, UNESCO argued that there wasn't enough evidence to suggest technology added value to education, calling the influence of private education companies trying to sell digital learning products a cause for concern. UNESCO analyzed about 200 education systems worldwide and estimated that one in six countries had banned smartphones in school, with the Netherlands set to ban phones, tablets, and smartwatches in classrooms starting January 2024.
1: Those were the facts, and we'll start this round of spins with Narrative A from The Atlantic. Educators, school administration, and parents must heed UNESCO's call to ban smartphones in schools as they are extremely detrimental to children's learning, social skills, and mental health. The mere presence of a smartphone is enough to reduce a child's cognitive capacity. These gadgets are not just becoming a distraction for students and wasting their time. They're forcing teachers to change their focus
0: from education to discipline. And a narrative beast following that up provided by The Conversation. Banning smartphones entirely from schools is dangerous as it could make it difficult for students to contact their parents in emergencies, including in cases of physical bullying. Instead of an outright ban, children must be taught how to use their smartphones responsibly. Absolute restrictions may or may not limit distractions, but responsible usage will make personal technology an unparalleled teaching tool. Adam, you and I were
1: talking offline about the solution to the narrative B is give your kid a phone that only calls yeah you don't they don't need a smartphone all they need is a, a phone a cell phone
0: I'm sorry but I still think that argument's kind of ridiculous because when we were when we were kids I didn't have a smartphone in school and my parents could get in touch with me if they wanted to even though they didn't you didn't want to in school because I was at school I was away from the house leave us alone yeah get out of school <laughs> this also yeah, this, oh, no, this I think uh, the second argument kind of harkens to like You know, kids should be allowed to drink alcohol if they want to. They just need to be taught how to responsibly drink alcohol.
1: Right. And where better to learn that (laughs) than than in in school?
0: school. (laughs) They should be drinking alcohol in school.
1: Mediterranean wildfires kill dozens. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, The Guardian, CNN, BBC News, Euronews and France 24. Deadly wildfires burning in at least nine countries across the Mediterranean have so far claimed the lives of dozens of people as thousands of firefighters continue to bring the infernos under control. In Algeria, wildfires reportedly destroyed at least 15 provinces, killing at least 34 people, including 10 soldiers, and displacing more than 1,500 residents. On Tuesday, six people were killed by extreme weather in Italy, as deadly storms battered the northern part of the country and wildfires erupted in Sicily, and blistering heat descended on the south. Wildfires also caused devastation in Tunisia, where about 300 people had to be evacuated from the coastal village of Melula. In Greece, savage forest fires forced the evacuation of 20,000 people from the holiday islands of Rhodes, Two pilots lost their lives when their water dropping plane crashed on the island of Evia while trying to coal the blaze. Last year, as many as 61,000 people died due to intense heat waves, crop withering droughts, and devastating wildfires during Europe's record breaking summer.
0: Melissa, thanks for the facts of that devastating story. We've got a narrative A spin provided by Reuters. While wildfires are a regular feature of summer in Mediterranean Europe, The frequency and intensity of the blazes this year are exceptional thanks to human-induced climate change, which is making heat waves more likely and more severe. As the Earth heats up year by year, the risk of fire will only increase. These apocalyptic scenes are just the beginning of scenes we will see throughout the region. Narrative B comes from The Conversation. Such
1: unprecedented wildfires highlight the need to rethink how landscapes can be managed to protect people and sustain ecosystems when the Mediterranean climate is rapidly changing. Rather than wasting time blaming climate change, developed nations, or policy failures, the focus must shift to better forest management and formulating customized preventative measures to shrink the wildfire's scope as much as possible.
0: And this story is going to wrap up with a nerd narrative that says there's a 49% chance that wildfires will destroy a total exceeding 10 million hectares of global tree cover by the end of 2030. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. And our final story today deals with the congressional UFO hearings. And witnesses are saying that the U.S. is aware of non-human activity. And here are the facts as agreed upon by News Nation, CBS, Associated Press, Guardian, and Fox News. On Wednesday, the House Oversight Committee heard testimony from former intelligence officer David Grush, who earlier this year claimed that the U.S. had concealed evidence of extraterrestrial technology from Congress and the public and was currently in possession of alien craft. Also testifying were two former fighter pilots who claimed to have encountered unidentified anomalous phenomena, or UAP. David Fravor, who recorded the 2004 Tic Tac UAP video, and Ryan Graves claimed that pilots who come forward with UAP claims face serious stigma. Grush claims that in 2019, while working at the National Reconnaissance Office, he was asked to identify classified programs of interest to a UAP task force. He claims to have uncovered multi decade UAP crash retrieval and reverse engineering programs that he was denied access to. Under oath, Grush reiterated the claims that the U.S. has known of non human activity since the 1930s and has recovered biological and technological material from crash sites. However, he claims to not have seen any alien craft or evidence himself, basing his allegations on his interview with the high intelligence officials. The bipartisan committee has highlighted the need for more transparency with regards to UAP programs, with Chair Robert Garcia calling for a serious and thoughtful examination of UAP claims. Last week, a bipartisan Senate bill was passed that would declassify more UAP information. The Pentagon has repeatedly denied the claims of UAP material being illegally withheld from Congress with a spokesperson saying they had found no verifiable information in support of any of Grush's claims.
1: Thank you, Adam. And here's our final round of narrative spin, starting with a pro-establishment narrative. This comes from The Atlantic. While these supposedly bombshell claims will reignite our fascination with UFOs, Grush's story is entirely predictable with his claims being as specious as all prior UFO whistleblowers. An appealing narrative of a brave truth-teller coming forward with evidence of a shadowy government plot cannot hide the absolute dearth of evidence to back it up. For the sake of a good story, Congress suspended its disbelief to hear tired tales of little green men, with the hearing being just as anticlimactic as every other UFO story.
0: That's followed up with an establishment-critical narrative provided by the debrief. Once ridiculed, UFO claims are being taken seriously by elected representatives, and perhaps it would be wise to heed their new concerns. If the Pentagon is hiding a shred of information from Congress, it would be a breach of the trust of the American public. Despite their repeated denials, there has been a startling lack of transparency with both parties bearing down on the three-letter agencies to finally come clean about what they know. For the sake of government integrity, we must take these allegations with respect and seriousness. And there's a final nerd
1: narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 25% chance that conclusive evidence for extraterrestrial life, past or present, will be discovered in the solar system by 2050.
0: Ah, but it doesn't mean discovered on our planet, right? Just
1: out, just out there, just
0: out, out in the solar system. We're gonna see. We might see something, but our planet, we, we've already got that to conclude. Do you think
1: evidence. we are going to find something in your lifetime?
0: Oh, I think I, I don't, I don't know if it's going to be revealed in my lifetime, but I think things have been found in my lifetime.
1: I'm with Fox Mulder here. I, I want to believe. Sounds so fun. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, July 27th,
0: 2023. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers, and we figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team that extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ.
1: For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.